I think what I took away from uh, uh, this wonderful day, and I really thank everybody who came, all of these brilliant presentations, all of you who stayed and asked wonderful questions, is that we have an economy that is collapsing. We have a political structure that is intransigent. We have a culture that is in disarray and in rebellion. We have a pseudo-totalitarian regime that has lost its monopoly on uh, media. Uh, we have an elite that can't make uh, decisions. But some of the elite is keen on war. We have an elite in the United States that must, might be keen on creating a war for its own domestic purposes. And if that's not enough, Russia is on march in Iran, and China might be turning Iran into a satellite state. If that doesn't make for a depressing Friday afternoon, <laughs> But if anybody can bring optimism to this scenario, it is these uh, three uh, wonderful uh, collaborators for this event. So why don't we begin with Larry and, and then go down uh, and have your take on what you have heard today. Okay, well, um, you know, the, the really big elephant in the room for me is the parlous state of the economy and the uh, the, I'm going to use your word, bankruptcy of the financial system. Um, I, you know, what I get out of this is, uh, you know, the big, I think, uh, both long-term, as uh, Puya was uh, suggesting with the, the trends, and shorter-term, uh, uh, you know, uh, contradictions, um, to use a Marxian word, uh, that I think make the Islamic Republic of Iran in anything like its current form uh, unsustainable. You know, we do not, Mike is always kind of uh, elevating our ignorance about transitions uh, and we certainly do not have predictive ability in terms of being able to predict when and how a transition will happen we don't have very good uh, predictive ability in terms of being able to predict what the transition will be to. But I think we're not without a certain amount of predictive ability about the fact, uh, about the inevitability or likelihood of a transition from something. And uh, this conference today has certainly uh, solidified and in some ways clarified my strong analytic hunch uh, that the transition from something uh, is the c conditions for it are ripening. Now, I just want to make uh, you know two or three more comments. One is, um, if you think, if anyone in this room thinks that it can get so bad that a transition to democracy will be almost inevitable. I just want to, I just want to uh, say one word to you, Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela, and it's a, it's, it's a comparison that's worth a little bit of thought, uh, not least because it's another oil economy, uh, not least because uh, China is in some ways bailing it, at, it out now with long-term oil purchases uh, that are leading the uh, Maduro government to mortgage that country's uh, sovereignty. 
not least because the regime has devolved in very, very dramatic ways from uh, what it was. It, you know, had some kind of ideological flavor. It was very perverted and increasingly anti-market, and of course it was deeply authoritarian. But now it's just becoming more nakedly repressive with much greater reliance on the uh, security apparatus, uh, even more kind of vulgar and personalistic authoritarianism, and kind of a willingness to shed all of the facades just to hang on. Uh, and you know, one can always get carried away by comparisons, but I think this kind of perversion is possible to some degree in, in Iran and backed up against the wall, it is certainly possible uh, to imagine not so much an outright military dictatorship, an IRGC dictatorship, I mean, wh what's their mileage in completely abandoning the Islamist aspects of the Islamic Republic of Iran, but a, uh, a an ever more authoritarian regime, ever more repressive, uh, where the military and security component of the authoritarian triad of domination becomes more and more uh, elevated. Uh, and so if we understand that nothing is inevitable, that just because the conditions are ripening doesn't mean you're gonna get a transition to democracy, you know, we come back to where we started. And the thing that I think is most worrisome to, to me is not just what Ali was saying, I don't see him here now, that civil society has really been decimated uh, and that uh, certainly takes away one pillar of optimism or one source of potential optimism for peaceful and democratic change. But I don't see anywhere, you know, serious strategizing on a democratic transition. And uh, we know from previous experiences of democratic transition the kind of strategizing that is needed. Uh, we know enough about democratic transitions to know that there are two things that absolutely must happen, particularly in a situation where there are so many obstacles that remain, not just to regime collapse, but to regime collapse that is succeeded by something resembling democracy. Number one, you've got to split the regime. And number two, you've got to, you've got to unite the opposition. Uh, and the, you know, then the question emerges of who are the actors that become relevant there? Who has the standing to do the unification? What are the specific elements of uh, strategic thinking that are associated with that. There's lots of experiences that could be consulted here. Uh, there's a whole body of strategic resources sitting at a particular uh, think tank in Washington, which the regime is hyper allergic to and hyper sensitive to because they think that place is particularly a repository of thinking and strategizing about regime change but I just don't see any of this going on. And if we are going to witness at some point an unraveling of the financial system into at a minimum deeper economic uh, disarray, uh, financial panic, uh, many people losing their savings as a result of these financial Ponzi schemes, 
their retirement, you know, wide, much more intense hyperinflation, I would think, would be one consequence of this. How can this be utilized in a way, how can this be engaged in a way that would move the system in a better direction? And if you, if Democrats or people who aspire to see Iran evolve into a more decent and pluralistic political system, don't have a strategy for dialoguing with elements of the regime to pull them away from, you know, uh, solidarity with the regime, I, I don't think there's going to be a good outcome. And I'll just, aside from the obvious points that could be made about some of the more flexible uh, elites in the system and alliances that could follow from that, uh, one thing that I have kind of gleaned from uh, Saeed's writing about the Basij, and it's too bad we didn't have time for you to uh, uh, dilate on this, is you know we should not assume that these kind of proletarian shock troops of the Islamic Republic are all you know happily unified behind the regime, and a lot of this kind of you know, kind of working class base, uh, you know, security base of the regime must be feeling its own sense of betrayal and uh, questioning and so on. But can the cosmopolitan secular elites who uh, generally uh, are the ones who come out onto the streets and uh, protest the uh, Islamic qualities of the Islamic Republic, you know, is there any means uh, or uh, modalities for them to, you know, have dialogue with and find common ground with some of the potentially alienated base of the regime. This is a, these are the kinds of questions people could be asking. I will say I think there's a parallel in the United States, which Frank and others have been writing about, where the so-called knowledge elite in the United States could actually... Uh, make some uh, uh, progress in terms of recovering democracy in the United States by reaching out to, you know, working class elements that have defected from the Democratic Party in the United States, but that's not the subject of this conference. In any case, I don't see that strategy happening. I don't know who would be the leaders and organizers and thinkers of it. I don't know to what extent the diaspora has made any progress at all in uh, transcending its own depressing and paralyzing divisions of the last, you know, what, 30, 40 years now. But, you know, the crisis could be coming fairly soon if you take seriously what has been said uh, over the course of this day. And so I'll just close by, by saying now I think is the time for really serious analytic and political strategizing uh, about how to respond to this and, and move and nudge the situation forward in a democratic direction. Um, so in 1968, Samuel Huntington wrote his classic book, Political uh, Order in Changing Societies, and he uh, put forward this basic model for political decay in which the rate of social mobilization in a modernizing society outruns the development of political institutions and 
the new groups that emerge are not uh, represented by those institutions. And that does not lead to a smooth path of modernization. It leads to collapse, civil wars, coups, you know, various forms of instability. So in listening to a lot of the presentations, so yeah, of course I was, you know, struck by the economic uh, and ecological uh, demographic crisis that uh, Iran is facing, but I was actually most struck by the social mobilization that's been, uh, uh, that's been happening in that country, uh, which you see in terms of numbers of women educated, urbanization, you know, people moving. I mean, it's, in fact, it's a very difficult situation because it's, sometimes, it's what's sometimes called modernization without development. That is to say, you have a lot of the social trappings of modernization, but without robust economic growth that, you know, would keep people employed and, and happy and so forth. And so it seems to me the situation there is a kind of classic one that Huntington was talking about, uh, which would mean, you know, instability down the road. Uh, and so none of us can, you know, predict what form that is going to take. Uh, but uh, that seems to me a useful frame in which to uh, think about things. Now, the second point is about the international situation. That's not just happening in Iran. That's also happening in Saudi Arabia and in other uh, parts of the Persian Gulf. Uh, Saudi Arabia is also educating a lot of women, uh, and you're getting a new middle class and, and so forth. Uh, and so I sort of think, you know, so you, you've now got this spreading Sunni-Shiite civil war within the world of Islam fostered by Saudi Arabia and Iran on the two sides, uh, which is now spreading, you know, in Yemen and Lebanon and all throughout the region. But the two big sponsors of this civil war are both themselves pretty sick. And I sort of think that the big, you know, external uh, wild card is this kind of competitive political decay, you know, which of them is going to collapse first. Um, I think that between the two of them, um, the United States has completely bet on the wrong horse, you know. Uh, to bet on Saudi Arabia, I think, is just lunacy because, you know, if you, if you had to ask which of these two societies would be able to come out the other side as a more coherent uh, uh, political entity, by far it's Iran. I mean, Iran is a real country. Saudi Arabia, I don't know what Saudi Arabia is, but it's not... You know, it's a tribal federation sitting on a lot of oil that has the trappings of, you know, a modern state, but it really is not a modern state. And if that regime collapses, then you have no idea what's going to come crawling out of, you know, the, the, the remains of it. Whereas, you know, I, Iran has an identity uh, uh, apart from this Islamic regime uh, that's been there since 1979. In fact, it's got one of the oldest national identities of any society anywhere in the world. Uh, and so there's a real basis for state continuity and, you know, stability and picking up the pieces if this, you know, this kind of um, uh, transition uh, happens. Uh, just a couple of pet hobby horses of mine. I mean, somehow a lot of Americans have convinced themselves that Iran is the biggest sponsor of terrorism in the Middle East, which I think is just a pile of BS. Uh, uh, you know, what Iran does is it supports other, you know, like-minded Shiite groups, just like any other, you know, power does in, in international relations. And it's really Saudi Arabia that's been, you know, by far the biggest sponsor of terrorism through all of its funding of madrasas and, you know, this incredibly reactionary uh, 
Islamic ideology. And it's interesting, so I was talking to Syed uh, earlier. He's just written this book about how the Iranians tried to do this kind of religious education. And as I understand it, you're, you're saying they failed completely, uh, which is good. Unfortunately, the Saudis have really been succeeding. Uh, and I think they're the ones that are responsible for the spread of all this, this ideology in Southeast Asia now. And you know, you know. so anyhow, that's not that's kind of not relevant to our uh, discussion. So I think that's the kind of frame that I see coming out of this: is that you have a region where there's going to be political decay, uh, and there's political competition among these decaying states. And we'll just wait to see what you know, <laughs> which one happens first. I'll just be very brief. It's late in the day, so we should wrap up. Uh, my biggest takeaway uh, from this meeting is the wealth of um, empirical data, analytic robustness that we had throughout the course of the day. So uh, we were kind of your sidekicks, Abbas, but Abbas, we thank you for mobilizing your uh, community here and your network to get the, the best and the brightest from around the world, and that's what it felt like to me today. Uh, but it also felt, number two, we, we, we don't know the, the moment of transition and revolutions. I remember sitting in the White House Situation Room in, in 2009 across the table with some people whose whole job it is. Uh, they work for, I shouldn't talk about the, who they work for. <laughs> you can guess. Um, uh, and this question of, well, why didn't you know this was going to happen? Well, why didn't you know it? You academics, why didn't you say it? Well, why didn't you guys know it? Um, and, and we're kind of back and forth about, well, who did not predict the, the, the green movement? Um, uh, and when we repeated that again, back, by the way, in 2011, um, in the same room with different people, uh, but same debate. So that is not very interesting, right? Revolutions seem impossible beforehand, and they seem inevitable uh, after they happen. We're not going to predict that. Um, but what we can do, I think, and what I would say is our imperative to do, given the talent that have been uh, mobilized here, and I would say more broadly, Iranian studies at Stanford and, and now in partnership with CDDRL and FSI is we should be more devoted to the, the diagnostics uh, and, and where data really matters and when we talk about numbers and, 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 and not just a kind of what often happens in Washington, a kind of abstract debate about regime change and references to uh, Iran with related to whatever is your favorite historic metaphor, right? That, that's kind of, that happens. We don't need to be a part of that. Uh, and I guess my challenge to everybody here, but Abbas, you in particular, is let's dedicate ourselves to, to informing uh, Americans and the world, uh, aggregating the data that we've, we've seen here and the analysis and, and being more in it. Because frankly, th there's not a lot to read on Iran. I tried to prepare for this this uh, this event, and I, you know, I have a pretty good network of uh, friends and and research assistants, and and it's the the paucity of serious academic work on Iran is still uh, it's we need to fill it. That's my challenge to us, right? And we have the people in the room here, and and let's like take that on and think. Think about the right different modalities that need not just be an edited volume, although that may be one, but, but to really put our oar in and to say, we don't know when a change is going to happen, but on the diagnostics, I heard some things today that were new 
and interesting, and we would do uh, uh, America uh, would be well served and the world would be well served if we tried to get that information out into a broader debate. Well, then let's end with two happy notes. First, we're going to early, we're going to finish 10 minutes earlier than we said. That's happy news. Second, uh, is that uh, I think the richness that uh, you saw here and the richness that is in Iranian diaspora, one of the most remarkable diasporas, I think, anywhere, and their accomplishments, not just in the world of business, in the world of technology, in every domain, and it is a diaspora in the sense that they are committed to bringing about change in Iran, is to me the most optimistic aspect of the possibility of achieving a more peaceful, a less violent, a less drastic transition. I think the Iranian diaspora can do for the transition to democracy and to a better Iran what Jewish diaspora did for Israel, what Indian diaspora did for India, what Chinese diaspora did for China. And what you saw here today is a small, truly, the tip of the iceberg of what this diaspora is capable of. All we need to do is mobilize it. Ha, ha, ha!